Thank you, worship team, for leading us into that precious time of praise and worship. Many of you were with us yesterday and uh, were able to share in the festivities of Missions Weekend. And uh, it truly was a, a just a, a blessed day. Jesse and Elise Entwistle are with us. Uh, I am just so delighted to have them, to have them all weekend. Elise is going to share a little bit. We thought we'd give her at least a half hour. <laughs> um, but these two, if I can say anything about what we experienced yesterday, was just the patience that they have and the peace they have in waiting on the Lord and what God has planned for them. Um, as they shared their story about how they came together, just a, just a patience in, a, in, in waiting. And, and I, as I reflected on that, as I listened to this song, It Is Well With My Soul, I, I just believe that as they've, they've had such patience in his process, God's process sometimes just takes tremendous patience on our part because our timing is so far off um, from his. But as they shared yesterday, it's just a, just a joy to hear how. And, and right now, they're waiting on him to where he might be leading them as they teach in Texas and uh, just wait for God's direction um, where he might be taking them to in the other parts of our world, wherever that might be in some Muslim country. So my pleasure to introduce these two. I'm laughing at myself right now because I remember every time my mom would get up here and start crying, I'd be sitting there like, Mom, not again. <laughs> but now we just feel really honored to be here because we're not deserving, but we just feel honored that you would trust us with this task and send us. Um, none of us are deserving of the things that God calls us to do, but we're honored that he would use us. So we just feel really blessed that you would have us here this weekend and that you would listen to us and just for the time on the field, too, the way that you just supported me financially and blessed me and sent me emails and encouragement. And I know that you were praying the whole time because I felt it as well. And just so thankful for all that God did in Cairo. We were talking last night about how our team leader used to say, you don't need, or Cairo doesn't need you, you need Cairo. And just how the same for God, he doesn't need us, but we need him. And just thank you so much for all the ways that you blessed us. And now I get to introduce someone who's become pretty important to me in the last year. And I'm excited for you to hear what God has taught him. This is my husband, Jesse. Hello. Um, I'd just like to echo my wife's uh, thanks for... Um, getting to be here. It's, it's a real privilege and a pleasure. And um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I have loved getting to see your church, getting to see y'all's heart for God, for the lost, and uh, getting uh, to, to just share some time with you. Um, so thank you so much for inviting us and making sure that we could come out here. Um, starting off, uh, John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So in this passage, Jesus is letting us know, those are Jesus, that's Jesus talking. Uh, he's letting us know uh, what we need. He says, you need to know God. That's what you need. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, he's offering us <clears throat> eternal life, and he's letting us know how to get it. And when we talk about eternal life, we have to pause a little bit because, like a lot of phrases in Christianity, it may have gotten, uh, we've gotten comfortable with it, and so we forget what it actually means. Um, and so, eternal life means ultimately two things. It means the literal meaning, which is eternal life, life that lasts forever. So life that doesn't ever stop, life that there's no end to, that isn't cut off by some death, that isn't going to get worn out one day and fade, that is going to be eternal. It's going to be lasting. And the second thing that eternal life means is that it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be perfect. Uh, a, a famous theologian said, um, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but he said something like, uh, if you were to take every moment of pleasure or joy that you've ever had, roll them up into one single piercingly sweet experience and experience that all at once, you would only have tasted a tiny glimpse of the joy that is offered to us. And that's not just true of a moment, that's true forever. That's true forever because eternity is going to mean getting to know God more deeply forever. Because he's infinite, so we're never going to run out of things to learn about him. And so as we progress deeper into God for eternity, we'll have more and more joy every single moment every single day for the rest of forever. That's what eternity means. So Jesus is saying, this is what you get. I'm offering you eternal life, and what you need in order to get that is God. You need to know him. So how do we know him? Well, he lets us know a little bit further on. He, he says, one of his disciples asks him, uh, Lord, um, why are you going to reveal yourself? Why do you reveal yourself to us, and not to the world? You know, it's great. You know, we love seeing you, but what about everyone else? And Jesus says, "He who loves me will obey my commands. I too will love him. Uh, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him." So Jesus is saying, "Okay." You want to know how someone gets to know me? You want to know how someone dwells with me and with my father, with God? If he obeys me. That's what love of God looks like, obedience. Because sometimes, sadly, would be nice if it wasn't the case, but we don't always feel it. You know, you don't always feel this overwhelming emotion for God. Um, 
But that's okay, because he says, that's not what I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to be obedient. I'm asking you to obey me. And if you obey me, I will come to you with my father, and I'm going to live with you. And if you live with God, you're going to know him. And if you know him, you're going to have eternal life. So, uh, cool story. Um, missionary by the name of Temple Gardner uh, was called, uh, well, he felt, he felt it was his, his duty to go to Cairo, Egypt. It was back, I want to say, early 1900s, so maybe 1910, 1920s, um, when there was still a British empire and Cairo was part of it. Uh, and he, he travels to Cairo and worked under a mission there, uh, ministering to Muslims, um, much as my wife and I had an opportunity of doing recently. And he was just an amazing, amazing man. Um, genius uh, in terms of intelligence, way beyond what most of us will ever hope to aspire to. Spoke Arabic so fluently that he actually, in both uh, the standard dialect and in the local dialect, was as good as an Arab, which is much harder than you would think. It's very, very difficult to get to that level. He came up with a method for learning Arabic that they still use at the American University of Cairo today. Um, genius, uh, incredible musician. Um, he, he played the piano uh, brilliantly. Um, he was uh, just a man of God. He, he prayed, he sought God. He used to, when he, he was struggling with temptation early on in his missionary career, he would, he would say, what you gotta do with that is to ride off into the desert with Jesus and strangle it. So he would, you know, take a bike ride off into the desert and just spend his time just giving himself to God until he felt like, okay, now I've got this temptation under control. And then he would go back and keep working. Um, amazing man of God. But when he died, he, he developed a pretty sudden illness. Uh, he, was, he was an older man at this point. Um, I want to say 70s or 80s, uh, maybe 60s. Anyway, he was an older man, and he, um, he developed this illness and he was on his, his deathbed, what he was going to be his deathbed, though he didn't know it at the time. And he just had this, this overwhelming sense of peace. And he would get up every morning, and he was in a lot of pain because of his illness, but he just felt this joy. And everyone who visited him could feel it. Like they would walk into the room and just feel God's presence. And he had a lot of people visiting him because he was such a well-known, respected, loved man, even by those who disagreed with him. So... Uh, Incredible story, on his deathbed, just before he dies, he looks around and he says, everything in this room says glory. And he died. And a man writing about his death and the funeral that happened after it said, those in England said, and rightly said, that the church was poorer for his death. But those in Cairo knew the deeper truth that death was poorer, and that Christ's church held her living treasure still. And what this man had, and what allowed him so much joy and peace in his death, was God. He knew God. And that's not some privilege you get as you become a missionary. That's not something that Oh, now you're going off to Cairo? Well, congratulations, you're now on the track to know God. No, it's offered to every one of us. 
we get to know God. And all we have to do is be obedient. And if we know God, we are going to have eternal life. So the next question, as you get to know God, is who doesn't? Because what God does in you, he wants to do through you. So the closer you get to God, the more you care that someone you know or someone you don't doesn't know God. Jesus said, last words, um, well, last words that he spoke in the Gospel of Matthew, probably not the last words in his life, but was, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Another uh, promise that he's going to be with us and how do we know that he's, how do we experience him being with us? Well, it's tied to the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. So I did a little research, not much. Took me about, I don't know, two minutes on Google, Google Maps. And uh, a little ways away in Minneapolis, um, 51 minutes to be precise, there is a mosque. Uh, that, you know, there's a bunch of Muslims that live there. And also, about an hour away in Minneapolis, there is an atheist group that meets, and they're, I think they're Minneapolis atheists or something. I forget what their name is. Um, but they meet, and they have, like, community outreaches. It was actually funny going on their website. They, they look like a church, only they're atheists. Like, it was like, oh, this, you know, Thursday night hangout, and, oh, we've got this outreach uh, to help the homeless on Friday, and, you know, all these different things, but they're atheists, so. Um, and then uh, an, another 51 minutes away, uh, there's a Hindu temple, also in Minneapolis. Um, so the people that don't know Jesus and that are meeting together and encouraging each other in their disbelief are very, very near to you. They're very near. They're very close. would not be hard to take a drive and to stop in at that mosque and to meet some people who not only don't know Christ, but are actively involved in a group of friends and, and committed family members who are keeping them from knowing Jesus. But I don't really believe you have to travel that far. 51 minutes, you know, that might be a little difficult on a work night. But what about the people that you work with? What about, you know, the people that you go to school with? I'm betting that everyone in this room, or almost everyone, knows someone who's not a Christian that they interact with on a reasonably regular basis. We have eternal life. They don't. We have to be heartbroken about that. Or, if we're not heartbroken, because, like I said before, you can't always feel it, we have to act like we are. We have to obey God in taking the gospel to our neighbor. 
And there's so much joy and there's so much life to be found in that. So there was a man. It's actually a really cool story. Um, This pastor, really, really well-known, respected pastor who traveled a lot to speak in England. And he traveled around and he ended up, he had this very odd experience where he kept on meeting people who had the same testimony. Uh, this this uh, elder in a church in Australia, he met and uh, after a conference, and they were going out to lunch, and he asked him, so how did you get saved? And this elder said, well, I, was, um, I grew up in the church, and I, I um, never knew Christ. I never had a personal relationship with Christ. But I stayed in the church, even though I didn't know Christ, and because of my business uh, ability, I grew up to a place of influence and authority in the church, and I became an elder, uh, even though I never had a personal relationship. And um, one day, I was traveling on a business trip in Sydney, Australia, and I was walking on George Street, and this little, mean, spiteful old man stepped out of a shop door handed me a tract and said, hello, sir, do you know Jesus? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And I tried to tell him that I was an elder in this church. He wouldn't listen to me. So I was very angry about this. I flew back to my hometown in Australia, and um, this, this, my, I talked to my pastor about this, and he agreed with the, the little old man. He said, he knew that I had not had a relationship with Christ for as long as he'd known me. And he'd been worried about this and praying for me all these years, so he led me to Christ. And I've been faithfully serving the Lord since then. Then this same British pastor gets on a plane and he travels to India. And he's, decide, he's uh, speaking at a conference for a, a group of missionaries, local missionaries in India that are going out to these very small rural villages and sharing the gospel and bringing Hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. So he's hanging out with a leader of this, this group after the conference, and he asks him, so how did you get saved? And he's like, well, I was, I was a rather wealthy person, influential in India, and I uh, was on a business trip. I was an ambassador, and I was on a business trip in Sydney, Australia. And I was walking on George Street, and this little old man steps out of this shop door, and he hands me a tract, and he says... Hello, sir. Do you know Jesus? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And this question stuck with me. So I go back and I was talking with my local priest and he said, just to satisfy your curiosity, go and talk to the missionary that lives down the road. And so I went and talked to him and he led me to Christ and I have been serving the Lord. I quit my job. I've been serving the Lord, and now I'm in charge of a group of pastors and missionaries that are literally winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ today. So then, there was a a sailor. Well, actually, I should say, the British pastor met a chaplain. He was speaking at another conference. He met a, a chaplain that was very high up in the Navy as a chaplain, and he asked him, so how did you get saved? He said, well, I was a sailor on this ship, and um, my mates and I went off the ship in Sydney, Australia. We got dead drunk. I was, you know, living a reprobate life at the time. Got dead drunk, 
got on the wrong bus, got off on George Street, and I was walking down George Street, and this little old man steps out of a shop door, and he hands me a tract, and he says, hello, sir, do you know Jesus? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And I, the fear of God fell on me. I was shocked sober. I run back to my ship. I find the chaplain. He leads me to Christ. And I've been serving the Lord ever since. And now I am a chaplain with a thousand chaplains under me. And we all bent on soul winning today. So this pastor, of course, I've, I've actually only told some of the stories. There's more. But this pastor at this point was very interested in this little old man on George Street. So he, he ends up at another conference in Sydney, Australia. And he asks one of the pastors there, do you know a little old man who hands out tracts on George Street? And the pastor said, oh, sure, yes, I know him. And he's like, I'd like to meet him. So they go and they sit down with this little old man on George Street. And at this point, he's so old and frail that he, he, can, he can barely hold his, his teacup. Like he's shaking, his hands are shaking so much that tea's slopping out into the saucer while he's drinking tea with them. And um, he talks to him and he tells all these stories that he's heard of these people that got saved because of these tracks that this little old man has been handing out on George Street. And this little old man is just crying his eyes out. He's so, so thankful at what God has been doing through him. And he says, well, my story is that I was leading a reprobate life uh, and I had the gospel preached to me and I gave my life to Christ and the difference in my life was night and day, overnight. And I was so thankful over what God had done in my life that I promised, I made him a promise that I would try and share a simple testimony with 10 people every day for the rest of my life. And, you know, I wasn't legalistic about it. Some days I was too sick, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it other days. And I found out that in my retirement, a great place to hand out tracts was on George Street. Um, I, I would spend a lot of time doing that, and um, I got loads and loads of rejections. But some people courteously took the tracks, and I have never, to this day, met anyone that got saved through me. And two weeks later, this little old man on George Street died and went to heaven. Now, let's pause a second and think, because that little old man on George Street was doing, according to our philosophy of today, everything wrong. You know, how many times have you heard, you know, you can't just share the gospel. You got to get to know someone. You got to make them know that they love, you love them first. You got to, you know, really, really, you know, build up the relationship, build up their trust, and then, you know, go for it. Share the gospel. But I'm here to tell you today that that is not the only way to share the gospel. And while that is a way and a good way, and we all should be doing that, you can meet someone, a complete stranger, and with the love of Christ in your heart, lovingly tell them that they need to know Jesus. And that's okay. Because how many people that you meet just passing strangers, if you ride on an airplane, 
chances are you're never going to see that person ever again in your life. So why not share the gospel with them? It can't hurt. It could only help. And of course, even more important than that is the fact that you are sharing with those who you know every day and don't know Christ. Because they're dying and they don't know Jesus. Also, you have to realize something. Sometimes you have to do something poorly before you can do it well. So I was a really, really terrible evangelist when I first got to Cairo. I was horrible at it. Um, and I remember getting into taxis, and honestly, I, I didn't stoop so low as praying, but I, I really strongly hoped that the man that I was going to be sitting next to in the taxi, the taxi driver, didn't speak English so that I didn't have to share the gospel with him. So I would get into these taxis and I'd, you know, you know, like look over at him and be like, Salam alaikum. And he'd be like, oh, hello, how are you? I'm like, oh, no. Um, and then I'd be sitting there next to this taxi driver um, and I'd just, you know, be like, oh, gosh, I really should share with him. I mean, I'm never going to meet this guy again. Jesus can only be glorified through this. Oh, I really should, oh, but I really don't want to. And usually what I would do is right at the end, before I, I was going to get out, like I'm, you know, a minute away, I'm like, so tell me, um, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, well, I believe he's God. Uh, bye. Um, and it was just really lame. But over time, I came to share a little bit more and even be able to do it a little bit in Arabic. And then over time, I came to the place where it was still difficult to bring up Jesus' name. But after he was brought up, it was really fun because we were talking about things that mattered and it was enjoyable and, and I got a little bit better at it. And it was just, it was really good. And then over time, it got to the place where I wasn't, I wasn't even worried about bringing it up. I was excited from moment one. But it, sometimes you have to do it poorly before you can do it well, and that's okay. Start where you're at and just share the gospel with somebody. Um, so after we have begun to share with our neighbor, the next logical question that we have to ask ourselves is, who doesn't have a neighbor to share with them? So this is where we get talking about the unreached. There are people dying in our world today who, as far as we know, have never had an opportunity to hear about Christ. And that should not happen. There's enough Christians in the world today that if all of us truly served God, not all of us would be missionaries overseas, but if all of us truly served God, we would preach the gospel to everyone who hasn't heard in our lifetime, in my lifetime. That would happen if all of us truly served him. But you have to recognize too, and this is true both 
when you go overseas and when you are sharing with, you know, your coworker, your neighbor, or somebody you just met on the street, that ultimately you're not the answer. God's the answer and that he's the one that changes hearts. So I met this, um, this believer in Cairo, Egypt. He's, he's a leader of a, of a group of Christians, about 400 of them. Some of them are, are, used to be Muslims. Some of them are, are Coptic Christians who have gotten really serious about their faith. But um, he, was, he used to be a Muslim. So I met him, and I asked him, so how did you get saved? And he was like, well, how much time do you have? And I said, as much time as I need. And he tells this story where he was a very devout Muslim, and he was engaged to be married to this girl. And then he comes to find out that she's a Christian. So his first reaction to her being a Christian was, I'm going to break off the engagement, and I'm just going to leave her. He's so angry about it. But then he said to himself, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to pretend that I am interested in Christianity as well. I'm going to go with her to church, find out all about them, and then I'm going to turn them into the government. So this was his plan. So for the next seven months, he spent his time getting to know this community, pretending he's a Christian, and, you know, living this lie. But after seven months, the girl finds out what he's been doing. She leaves him and flees to somewhere he has no idea where. The church kicks him out of their community, and he's on his own. And he goes home to his house, and that night, he lays down to sleep, and he has this dream. And in the dream, he is standing above the world. So the world is beneath him, and he's standing above the world, and he's across from Jesus. And Jesus is looking at him, and Jesus is dressed in his heavenly robes, the robes that he wore at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He's, king, he's dressed as a king. And whenever Jesus speaks... This man said that his voice was so powerful, it's like shaking the world. So, Jesus asked the man, why don't you believe in me? What's your question? And he says, my question is about your blood. How come you had to die in order for other people to live? And Jesus disappears from in front of him and reappears a little ways away. But this time, instead of in his kingly robes, he's wearing the garb of a servant. And across from Jesus, in front of Jesus, there's a man who's committing some sin. He didn't tell me what it was. He just said this man was sinning, and Jesus starts to yell at him to stop. But the man doesn't stop. He keeps sinning. So Jesus starts to scream and cry and sweat and, and just scream at this man to stop sinning. But this man keeps sinning. So Jesus falls to his knees, and he reaches down, and he hurts his own hand so that his palm starts to fill with blood. And then he reaches out, and he touches this sinning man, and immediately as he touches him with his blood-filled palm, the man is transformed. He turns away from his sin, and he uh, is, is made new. So then the scene repeats itself. Jesus disappears. Oh, I forgot one part. Then, after the man is transformed, Jesus, still kneeling, reaches down. He washes off his hands and his face in the pool of blood and sweat and tears at his feet. And then he stands up and he looks up to heaven and he laughs. And his laugh is so powerful, it's shaking the world again. 
Then the scene repeats itself. Jesus reappears in front of him in his kingly robes, disappears, uh, reappears in the garb of a servant. But this time, instead of one man, there's millions of men, women, and children everywhere. And they're all sinning. And Jesus is next to every single one of them. And he's doing the same thing. He screams. He cries. He yells at them to stop. But they don't stop. He falls to his knees. He hurts himself. He touches them with his blood-filled palm. And they're transformed. Then he reaches down. He washes off his hands and his face. He stands up. He looks up to heaven. And he laughs. Then all of that disappears. And Jesus reappears in front of the man this devout Muslim who had been pretending to be a Christian for seven months. And he says, now you will believe. And that man woke up and he believed. And what's cool about that is, is a number of things. But it's that, it's that God does the work and God gets the glory. And God is the one who's excited about that glory. You know what's awesome? Heaven isn't for you. It's not for me. It's not for any of us. Heaven is for God. The reason heaven exists is because of the joy and the delight that God will get in looking at a resurrected, perfect human that is made in his son's image. That's why heaven exists. Do you know how much joy God is going to get one day when he looks at you and you're no longer messed up like you are right now? You're beautiful. And God's going to do it. God's going to bring Muslims. God's going to bring people from Minnesota. God's going to bring people that don't know him right now into his kingdom. He's going to do it. But the crazy thing is that he wants us to partner with him in doing it. One of the closing questions I have for you is, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? More people can die for Christ than you would suspect. But it's very difficult to live for Christ. So I want you to go home. I want you to pray. I want you to pray about what it means for you to be truly obedient to Christ. And I think one of the things that it will mean is that you share the gospel with those around you. But the rest of what it means is between you and Jesus. Once again, I want to thank you guys for having me here. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas, I mean, uh, Sunday. <laughs>